Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, public health reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. And artificial intelligence has been a fascination of science fiction for almost a century, but recent advancements have shown that autonomous robotics and artificially intelligent systems are here in a new reality. Uh, Today, we're gonna be talking with three guests about artificial intelligence and our future here with artificial intelligence. And our guests are all from the IU School of Informatics, Computing, and Engineering. They are David Crandall, Associate Professor in uh, Informatics and Computing, Nathan Imsmenger, uh, an Associate Professor also in Informatics and Computing, and David Leake, a Professor of Computer Science. You can join us on the program at 812-855-0811 or toll-free 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. All three of you, thank you so much for being here with us today. We're looking forward to this topic because Sarah and I, you know, we don't know much about it, and we've already admitted to you that it kind of scares us. So, <laughs> you're gonna... very much. <laughs> right. So I want to I want to ask uh, David Leake first to just talk about, um, you know, this this rise in artificial intelligence, uh, AI. I mean, can you sort of map the rise of the topic well, for us? Yeah, I think actually, um, a kind of watershed year was 2011. Um, In 2011, there were three developments that I think even those in the field of AI probably would not have anticipated. So that was when um, Google self-driving cars came out, when Siri was launched, and also when a computer program um, defeated the human champions at the game show Jeopardy. Um, And basically, it's been very, very difficult to get AI systems that can deal with kind of common sense, um, diffuse information for very focused tasks. It was much easier. And so to be able to get that flexible reasoning, I think, was um, a shock even for people in AI and made people wonder where exactly are we. Mm -hmm. So David uh, Crandall and and Nathan, uh, both of you are, are in informatics and you know you study this stuff all the time how'd you get interested in it i mean did you get interested in it when you were when you were kids or did you just start you know after you sort of got to be an adult nathan i got interested in it while i was an undergraduate student in engineering and i was thinking about the use of technology in medical diagnosis Mm -hmm. and i embarked on a a senior thesis project that i thought was going to be technical in nature so i thought it was going to be about how these systems worked how we could improve them and more importantly how would how would we know whether they were working or not and it turned out that the, the actual really interesting questions in medical diagnosis about artificial intelligence were about human beings. So they were about the way doctors perceived these systems, the way patients saw them, the way insurance companies, uh, liability lawyers, uh, ethical decision makers saw these things. And so for me, it was the first moment where I stepped outside what seemed to be a set of technological developments and, and asked a little bit more about people. And, and actually, I think that's what's missing from a lot of the contemporary discussions about AI, right? It's mm-hmm. as if these things are just happening mm-hmm. outside of any human agency. And I think that's one of the things that's frightening about AI specifically is that it might possibly be outside of human control. Uh, my understanding from, from David and David is that the more you know about how these things actually work, the less likely you are to be afraid of that. But I think it's an important conversation. Can I follow Nathan's, up on, oh, go Nathan's ahead. comment on the medical systems actually is very interesting for the concerns about AI because actually the ability of medical systems to solve problems has basically somewhat outstripped their application because of reasons like liability concerns. And also, um, at what point does one really trust the AI system. If the systems can't explain, even if they generally are making the right answers, doctors and patients aren't going to trust them. What kind of questions would they be answering? 
So basically it would be um, the system would be prescribing an antibiotic, for example, or at least recommending an antibiotic, deciding what a particular infection is, and the doctors want to know why did you decide on that particular treatment. Um, some systems simply say, well, I was trained and this is the right answer. There's no way to get anything more than that. For some, it's a more complicated chain of rules, but it might be a very long path of rules that looks nothing like what the human would intuitively understand. Mm -hmm. And I sort of got into it actually from the opposite way as, mm. as Nathan. I was more interested in it as sort of a technical exercise because a lot of the most difficult problems, I think, in computer science, well, many of the most difficult problems in computer science sort of pop up when you start thinking about AI in terms of like actually replicating what humans are able to do in the real world. And AI um, is also a really nice field in computer science where it brings together a lot of different things that one might be interested in, like I was as a, as a, as a student. It brings together math, it brings together cognitive science, it brings together programming, it brings together algorithmic thinking. So in some sense, I've moved sort of mm. the opposite direction where I started off being more on the technical <coughs> side and over time, appreciate more and more the human side of, of artificial intelligence as well. Is there just a basic definition for AI? Because some of the things that you're talking about, like Wilson, the, the computer, and these driverless cars, some of that stuff I wouldn't even think fell into AI necessarily. It's, it's very interesting. There are many definitions of what AI is. There's some technical definitions which say that we have some specification of um, the utility of different actions and basically how does the behavior of the system, how close does it get to achieving what we consider an optimal um, behavior is. The definition that I like best actually is by someone named Chris Riesbeck who said that it's basically how do we answer the eternal question of why are computers so stupid? And so basically <laughs> um, that takes the AI classic pictures. We want systems that do things like chess that we think smart people do or solving equations. The things that are really hard for AI systems are the common sense things. So things like vision, things like reasoning about everyday events, and those are the things that to this day are really challenging for AI. Mm -hmm. So how does, I mean, you were talking before about how it's not really that complicated, some of, the, some of these things, and, and you know, I'm not sure I trust, the, <laughs> trust you on what's complicated and what's not, but um, can you give us a basic understanding of how something like Siri can actually work so that I can talk to Siri, ask him a, a question that could have, I don't know, could have multiple answers or something, and Siri can give me a reasonable explanation? <laughs> Well, um, I don't know what your experience has been like with Siri. We were talking a little bit before about the Alexa that some of us have, uh, the, the, the Amazon product that, that sort of sits on your table and you can communicate with it. Um, and these devices, I think, are really, really amazing for what they've um, been able to do, especially if you look at where we were maybe five years ago. We might not have even thought that such things would be possible. And yet my experience with Siri is that it works really well for sort of the common cases. It's optimized to, to, to handle what most people do well, um, for, uh, what most people ask it to do really frequently, for instance. So we all ask Alexa because we're just playing around with it. We ask Alexa, how do you spell supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? Right. We want to challenge it. Right. Right. <laughs> ask it some math questions and so on. And, but if you sort of deviate off of the path of really more obscure things, you'll start getting much more difficult, you know, much more difficult problems than you start getting much more odd behavior. And so what I'd say is that like these devices often and the AI technology is designed for the really common case. In other words, a lot of what we ask them to do is kind of boring. The world is kind of boring. If I take a picture in it, for instance, and I want an algorithm to identify what's in this picture, chances are there's a person in the picture, right? Chances mm -hmm. are there's a person. I don't take very many pictures of kangaroos or something like that. And so I think the state of um, AI is such that we're optimizing for sort of the simple cases, the things that people do a lot. And that makes it a lot easier than trying to handle all the possible situations that can happen in the real world. And I think that's sort of the gap that between where we are in AI and maybe the, the nightmare scenarios that people think about with AI is that that's a really, really huge gap. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and one of the things that happens a lot is people look at what AI does well. Siri, what, what's the weather today? Uh, you get a, a reasonable answer. And then they extrapolate forward into some future in which Siri can do the harder questions or can do other things. What I, I'm interested in, so unlike 
David and David, I'm not a technical expert in artificial intelligence, but I've written a lot about the history of artificial intelligence. And one of the things that really strikes me about that history is they're, they're almost always 10 years out from a major revolution in artificial intelligence, <laughs> dating from the 1940s, and it's always 10 years out. And, um, and it's never happened, and I, I'm not convinced that it's going to happen in 10 years from now. And it's, it's not that the techniques aren't getting better, but they, they're getting better in the things that computers can do well. But there's a large class of problems and human situations that, in fact, they probably never will do particularly well. And, uh, and then the choice is about kind of what jobs we want to automate out with artificial intelligence and what jobs we don't. And those are human, again, they're, they're human priorities. Uh, and there's a certain self-interest in saying, well, these things are outside of history, right? Um, you, you hear this all the time, firms predicting that AI will put people out of jobs. Very often, those are companies whose job it is to put people out of jobs, right? So they're framing something as a technological development when it's really, that's their business model. They're consulting companies, they're operations managers. And, um, and so again, you're, you're cherry picking what's powerful about AI and ignoring the limitations, uh, which is sometimes I think why looking from within uh, the situation looks less dangerous. Yeah, for the limitations, actually, for something like Alexa, if you say, tell me a joke, it can tell you a joke. Um, there's no way it would understand that joke at all. It just is basically giving something that's been provided to it. And I think that's a lot of this is remembering that the computer has access to a huge amount of data. And in some sense, a lot of things that seem like they require intelligence, you can get away with by just having a lot of data. For instance, mm -hmm. with Jeopardy, I could win Jeopardy if I could sit at the computer and search every single you know problem in milliseconds on Google. Like that isn't that isn't really all that hard. And yet the amazing thing is the human that can actually still compete with the computer that's essentially right. doing that. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, and I want to I want to ask that question. So just to make sure I understand. So it sounds like a lot of times, uh, or I think of Siri as like being in this computer and just being able to very rapidly access Google. You know, much more mm. rapidly than I could. So I can just say, "Hey, what you know? What year was was um, Tom Petty born?" Right. Mm -hmm. And she tells right. me immediately, so I don't have to look it up. Right? Is that mm -hmm. kind of how it works? That's kind of how it works. Yeah. I mean, one of the amazing things with Alexa is how well the speech recognition works these days. So that is really an important technical achievement because it has to understand some the words that you're saying. It sort of has to understand to some extent the question that you're asking, which is different from the words that you're saying. But there again, you can get away with pretty simple patterns. A lot of people ask, what is the weather, right? There's only so many ways of asking that. If you ask it in some really obscure, like Shakespearean way, it's probably not going to, it's not going to respond. And then it's just a matter of knowing where to find that information. And again, they can sort of optimize it for the common things people are, people are asking about and know where to look for that information. And, and so there, there's a great case where, so where is the intelligence in that system? It's in the signal processing and the speech recognition, which is admittedly a very hard problem to solve. But it's not that, and then it's just doing a Google lockup, as mm -hmm. you say. It has no conception of of Tom Petty, of the history of rock and roll, of the fact that he recently died and that's on everyone's attention. It has no internal categories for any of those things. And so in that sense, it's not very intelligent at all. It's certainly not what artificial intelligence when it begins in the 1940s is imagining a kind of intelligent machines, questions about whether those machines could be sentient and autonomous, whether we should treat them like other forms of life. That kind of, you know, the, the newest Blade Runner movie is coming out tonight, and those are kind of philosophical, metaphysical questions it's engaging with. I don't think anyone thinks Siri is likely to become self-aware and, and, and intelligent. Uh, and, and that's because what, sh what that system does well is speech recognition, and that's great, but that's not general intelligence. Mm -hmm. I want to follow up in a minute, but let me, let me give you our phone numbers, Certainly. David, just for a second. So 812-855-0811 or toll-free 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions, news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition if you want to talk about artificial intelligence. 
David? Okay. So I agree with what um, David and Nathan were saying, but feel I should jump in with a little bit of defense of the Jeopardy system. <laughs> sure. um, basically, it was doing a little bit more than simply Googling, and that, of course, when you Google, there are lots of different answers that you mm -hmm. might get. Yeah. And so the question was how to balance all of those. And so that's really where the contribution came, and actually that's where they think the application of that system is going to come. Yeah. Yeah. That is, the goal is to take that technology and use it to search, say, the medical literature for cancer. There's an enormous literature, and so for a particular patient to bring all these pieces of evidence, decide which are most relevant. And so those are getting a little bit closer. It's certainly not self-awareness by any means, but it's a bit more sophisticated. When we're talking about some of the things that Alexa can do now, like mm -hmm. turn your lights on and off for you, that's, I mean, that's not Google. That seems smarter. It, no. <laughs> You're looking like that's actually not smarter. <laughs> well, so I have Alexa at home. I, I have to admit it's amazingly useful. Like when I walk into a dark room, I can actually turn on the lights. But I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I can call to it as I want to go to bed. It's going to turn off. All yeah, the it feels really like we're great. on the Jetsons. Yeah. It's really nice. And yet again, it's just it's really good at speech recognition and looking for those patterns of what I say and then carrying out a very specific command. Um, what I feel like in t a measure of intelligence would be then, t additional measure of intelligence would be able to respond to sort of the context of things. For instance, you know, if I say to it, Alexa, I need help, what I want is going to differ dramatically based on whether I'm like, you know, trying to figure out what the next ingredient in my recipe is, or I'm collapsed on the floor, or whatever. Uh, another interesting thing about Alexa, maybe you have noticed as well, is Alexa doesn't care who or like what is saying the command. So for instance, mm. if, if the TV says it, it believes it. <laughs> if somebody outside my window calls, you know, Alexa, unlock the front door, it would do it, right? So That's it's true. not really understanding the context of the situation. It's just sort of programmed to um, identify some commands and carry those out. And it's amazing that it works as well as it does. It's incredibly useful. but it's still relatively safe. But it's certainly a good opportunity for um, the foundation for assistive technologies, for systems that can actually learn your preferences and get more intelligent in the way they interact with you. Can you could you say, Alexa, do not open the front door unless you hear the word whatever? And so if you're locked out, you could call in and say, I think can it, you teach it to do that? I think the, the, there's certainly the, those possibilities. Yeah, I don't think the product does, but you know, it could recognize voices uh, 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 potentially. Eventually, there could be some sort of like authentication where it asks you a secret question or whatever, right? Th these things yeah. are possible. But, but, the but question I think is, this gets at the heart of some of the concerns that people have, right? So the idea that machines can exhibit human-like behaviors or can uh, have directed behavior predates the computer considerably. And a classic example thought experiment is your thermostat, right? Um, when it's cold, it turns up the heat. And when it's hot, it, it turns on the air conditioning. That's an intelligent behavior. And yet, knowing how a thermostat is constructed, we all, none of us believe that a thermostat knows that it's summer or winter. It has some concept of that. It, it, we don't think it knows about comfort. We just think it's a kind of behavior that's useful and from a certain point of view seems intelligent. And the question is whether Alexa turning your lights on and off, answering your door, is just a thermostat with more features mm. in it, or it's some radical transformation into a machine that um, is intelligent in some meaningful sense. No one thinks, for example, that your thermostat at some point is going to cook you dinner, right? There's no path between those two. And again, the question is, do current successes in, information, in, in, in artificial intelligence um, kind of threaten the kinds of future that people like Elon Musk and science fiction has been predicting for quite some time? And, and I think in some ways they're different categories of thing. Um, and, and that's really important to keep in mind, that they get better along certain trajectories. They don't jump uh, phases. Yeah, and Nathan, so you were talking before about how, you know, in your study of the history that everything's always 10 years off and it never quite develops that way. Can you give us sort of an example of one of those things that maybe in the 50s people were saying, well, in 10 years we're going to be able to do this? So, then, so in 1946, when the, the term artificial intelligence is, is created, mm -hmm. they have a really grand imagining of intelligent machines. Um, today, I think when we talk about things like machine learning, it's 
that's very narrowly focused on pr particular problem domains. Uh, one of the things I study is in, in the 50s, they're trying to imagine, so what what do humans do that's really intelligent and is a kind of general intelligence? And then they, for a variety of reasons, come up with humans play chess and smart humans like me play chess and chess has been invoked as a metaphor for war and love and business strategy and so they for almost 50 years AI kind of sets its gold standard as a computer that can play chess and beat a human would be an intelligent machine and then in 1995 or 6 Deep Blue beats Kasparov and by that point people realize chess maybe not isn't the best measure, that Deep Blue can play chess, that's all Deep Blue can do, and maybe this wasn't some breakthrough milestone metric that we thought. And so the landscape changes. And again, it's not to say that there aren't really significant advances, but these, these fears, these big schemes, it's artificial intelligence is a constantly changing word. So you ask, what does it mean? I'm not sure what it means. It, it means different things. and the, the techniques that work in one it's become a marketing tool among other things and that makes it even more confusing right everyone wants to say that their thermostat has artificial intelligence built into it well right I, it's it's no longer clear what that means uh, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back and talk more about artificial <coughs> intelligence and what could be in our future we have three guests with us in the studio david crandall nathan insminger and David Leake, and they're all with the uh, School of uh, IU School of Informatics, Computing, and Engineering. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com and IU School of Public Health Bloomington online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with Sarah Whitmire, and we're talking about artificial intelligence today with three uh, very intelligent people, uh, David Crandall and Nathan Insminger, who are associate professors in the School of Informatics, Computing, and Engineering at IU, and David Leake, who's a professor of computer science in that same school. You can join us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. And you can also email questions to the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Sarah? Going into the break, Nathan, you mentioned Elon Musk, so I did just want to follow up. Uh, we know he's the head of Amazon, but he has been arguing for more regulations on AI. And so I, it seems like he has what he thinks are some legitimate fears about the future of it. But I think I, what I hear you saying is that might be a while off, not 10 years. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think Elon Musk has been very successful at uh, making grand and exciting claims about the future. And that's that served him quite well in, in his business. Uh, I don't disagree with him about regulation, although I think maybe he and I would differ about what that is, right? So his idea is that artificial intelligence is going to run, run amok, and therefore we should put some limits on development. I would argue that artificial intelligence is, it, it embodies human choices and decisions. And we ought to have more scrutiny about what those decisions are and how they work. So for example, one of the features of machine learning as a, a kind of artificial intelligence is that it learns from data. That's the big advantage. But it also then replicates social categories. So for example, we've discovered that uh, machine learning in the context of, say, 
financial analysis replicates categories of race and it replicates pa structural patterns of discrimination because they were out there in the world and then the machines pick up on that, they recreate that, but then they kind of disembody that and it seems like, well, we just got this decision from a machine, how could a machine be prejudiced or racially biased? Um, and it conceals that social factor and, and that's what I think ought to be regulated. There ought to be scrutiny and there ought to be accountability for firms using machine learning in socially significant contexts and they should be held accountable for the decision their engineers are making, not the decisions their artificial intelligence is making. Uh, claiming that AI is doing this is a kind of absolution. Think about fake news, right? You know, uh, the, they filter up in algorithms because human beings are making choices about how those algorithms work. Um, and we ought to be asking some really serious questions about who's making those decisions, how, and what we might do about it. It's interesting I, for Elon Musk. He, of course, um, has been having all those cautionary tales, but he also is enormously committed to AI technology and Tesla mm -hmm. self-driving cars. They're really pushing mm -hmm. that forward. And so I think it may partially be a reflection of actually his recognition of the power of the technology. Mm -hmm. In January, I was at a conference on called Conference for Beneficial AI that he attended. And basically, the idea was that for some of these um, basically life-critical systems, one should treat them maybe more like aircraft, where you have these enormously complicated systems. You want to assure their safety. It's not that there's anything intrinsically evil, but on the other hand, when the stakes are so high, one mm. wants to be very careful from an engineering point of view. Mm -hmm. I should say, I did misspeak earlier, and I think I said that he was over Amazon for right. Tesla. Thank you. Right. Yeah, I, I, we have a phone call. We have two phone calls, so we're going to go to the phones. If you guys could go through your headphones. So Jess is first. Jess from Columbus. Go ahead. Uh, the concern that I constantly read is that through the medical society, the creation of artificial intelligence is moving fairly rapidly, such as they're trying to, and they successfully have been able to move body parts by the use of artificial intelligence. Well, that's the way they're going to be coming in. They're going to be coming in through the creating cyborgs. Is there any thought along that line? I mean, it's been in science fiction, now, certainly. Uh, certainly the, the computer industry has to have it be taken along those lines. Could I have any comments on that, please? Yeah. Um, David? David Lee? Okay, sure. Um, well, for um, medical technology and artificial intelligence, it's certainly been used for things like um, robotically-assisted surgery. I think that there's a hope also for things like um, maybe for those who are blind, having an artificial retina, those types of um, input devices. And so I think that one could really view these as kind of analogous to something like an artificial limb. It's not anything that would really, that we would think of as creating a cyborg, but could um, basically help people to better function in their um, just everyday environments. Nathan, do you have anything to add? Because you, you worked in that medical area for a while. Uh, maybe just to say that this is one of those cases where categories blur. Right, so is an artificial kidney like artificial intelligence? Are they just common in the sense that they're human-built prosthetics to other things? Um, and, and so I think there are somewhat different categories. Mm -hmm. I might say that um, in some sense, I I'm, uh, so there is sort of this, this blurring. I, I look around as I walk around campus with all of our students who are constantly carrying their, their smartphones, right? And we are probably as well as we walk around. And so the difference between sort of a device that's in my body and a device that I'm carrying around all the time is sort of a subtle thing, right? And so I worry to the ex I'm not worried about devices in my body. I'm more worried about how we let technology impact what we do. And I think you can already see how people use their phones in order to impact what they do. And I think that's maybe the scarier part of, of the implications of technology and AI in general is what we, what we let it uh, convince ourselves of on how we let it interact with our lives, not that it's going to sort of uh, inject itself into our bodies per se. Jess, is that okay? Any, any follow-up? All right. Thanks, Jess. Well, well but I don't know. He hasn't, as far as I'm concerned, he has not addressed my concern. 
I really believe that the artificial intelligence is going to penetrate into our body. Uh, yeah, we're going to use them as mechanics, but uh, essentially when they start telling our hand how to act, pretty soon, they, and as they pointed out, there, there's big research going on in the eyesight. That's messing around with the brain, so uh, that's, that's where I feel that the artificial intelligence may be sneaking into our society closer than we really like it would be. All right. We'll, we'll get a reaction from, from David. Okay. One thing that's important to keep in mind is that although it's very easy to think that, say, AI systems will have the same goals that people do, there's actually no reason they necessarily would have those goals. And so when one thinks of any risk of AI moving into some area, Basically, these are systems which might have goals that have been programmed into them, but it's not that they necessarily are going to have the same sorts of goals that we do or in any way threaten as a result of that. Yeah, I think my follow-up to that mm -hmm. would be, I, I think what I worry about more is with all sorts of um, our reliance on new technologies mm -hmm. that there are humans out there who understand how to hack into these mm -hmm. systems and cause great you know, turmoil. Exactly. And for self-driving cars, for example, mm -hmm. there have been concerns um, on that. Even for cars with their current level of automation, um, people have recognized that security is an enormous um, issue that has to be addressed. Mm -hmm. All right. We have a second caller, and it's Rick from Bloomington. Rick? Hi. Thank you. Uh, I, I more of a comment, I guess. Okay. I had noticed that when one of the guests started, at least I thought, started to refer to Siri as she and then changed quickly to a system like this, that aside from whatever academic definition we may come up to try to define AI, I think that our perceptions have a lot to do with it. So if you perceive something like Siri or Alexa as having a personality, for society, outside of technology, that does kind of humanize it and creates a kind of intelligence, somewhat like data on next enterprise, some characters perceive data as more human, some perceive him only as an android. So I think that what we feel about it defines it as, as much as whatever academic definition might be. Mm -hmm. This, this is Nathan. You, you caught me. I, I did refer to her as she, and, and that was partly a slip, but is partly true. It's, it's not a coincidence that the default for most of these voices are female voices, and it has to do with psychological research, but also kind of social patterns of who you expect to be helpful, who you might think is being threatening or not. So there's, there's a kind of gendered component to that. And yes, you can switch away from the defaults, but the defaults are there for, for a reason. And, and so I think you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. All right, Rick. Yes. Thank you. Okay. We appreciate it. Thank you. Uh -huh. 812-855-0811 is the number here in Bloomington or toll-free 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions at news at indianapublicmedia.org. David, I want to follow up on something you said just about why we sort of have this idea that artificial intelligence would naturally be interested in sort of taking down the human race. <laughs> um, I mean, really, just, just look at pop culture and all the movies. Why is it that we've sort of determined that this would be the end goal of AI? I think that a lot of it is that people think of AI systems as just people with various attributes enormously amplified. And it's actually um, not in any way like that. Basically, I mean, as, as David was saying earlier, the methods could be very simple. The goals may be um, within a particular task context. Um, there's actually a famous story about a medical diagnostic system which at one point very early on was given um, just as a joke information about someone's old car which had rust spots on it and diagnosed it as having measles because um, <laughs> the car had red spots all over its body and it didn't know anything mm -hmm. except measles. Um, but these are just very, very different from humans. And so as one is trying to, if one doesn't have the background on how these are built, um, the natural thing to do is to think, well, they are like people to anthropomorphize them, as was also mentioned in the call-in. Um, but in fact, the systems are built with um, particular types of goals and function within that framework. I, I mentioned to these three um, a survey that I had, had seen mm -hmm. this morning, and I guess I just want your reaction when I, when I tell you that in this survey of 2,000 American adults, um, 
created by a consumer psychologist, 43 percent of the American public believe AI poses a threat to the long-term survival of humanity. It's kind of what you're talking about in a way, Sarah. I mean, does that surprise you or make you like, oh, my gosh, what's wrong? It it might be interesting (laughs) to think about what what to break down those fears and think about what people are really afraid of, right? So uh, one thread in, in, in those fears is the fear of technological systems that become so complex that humans lose control over them. And that could apply equally to a, a kind of industrial era factory as it does to an autonomous vehicle or concerns about that scientific expert who's always telling you how to do your job and how to think and how to vote, uh, get embodied in AI, or fears about technologically driven unemployment, which are very real fears, uh, get embodied at this particular moment in AI because that's the mechanism by which we think that is going to happen to us. But in some ways, they're not about any of those three things. There's an underlying fear that I think is legitimate and significant, but it gets mapped on to AI in part because AI is so flexible and because it's not really there so you can project into some imagined future um, these contemporary fears. I think the fears are fascinating and important, but... We're gonna, we have a couple of phone calls, so uh, we're going to go first to Daniel from Bloomington. Daniel? Hi. Uh, you actually just mentioned the thing that I wanted to talk about, which was the fears of AI-driven unemployment. And I am a software engineer, so I track the field pretty closely. And we're actually we're getting really close to the kind of AI that's going to wipe out millions of jobs. You know, so you talk about self-driving cars and self-driving trucks. Well, that's millions of jobs that go away. You talk about... Drones and robotics getting to the point where they can do delivery, that's another couple million. Um, I saw a video a couple of years ago of a pair of arms, uh, robotic arms that come out of the wall in the kitchen. You stock them with the food they need. They can record the movements of a chef, and then they can cook a meal for you, essentially. And I don't know where those are now. They're probably horrendously expensive when I saw that video, if, and probably buggy as hell if I know anything about software. But <laughs> think about where those get eventually, you know, that was a couple of years ago. If those reach the point where they can function in a fast food uh, business, then you're looking at the entire service sector wiped out. Um, And I think people's fears, you know, this doesn't have to be scary. To me, this is really exciting because we're already at a point where we're producing, when you think about the basics, clothes, clothing, housing, we're producing more than we need on a global scale, but we don't have an economy that actually maps that to, um, you know, living standards for people. People are struggling and we have a low labor force participation rate and people feel like they are constant under constant economic threat. So then this advancement of automation and AI feels threatening. So I just that feels like the real more important part of the discussion to me than the the, the questions of general AI because yeah, general AI is it, it if it comes it, who knows when that comes. But this other stuff is real coming it's on the near horizon. Daniel, let, let me. I mentioned the survey, and one of the other questions in the survey was about this very thing. Americans work in fear that 36% of their job today could be replaced by AI within five years. So, you know, those are the kind of numbers you're talking about. It's a really good question. I think a really important point. And what you said about productivity is important, too. There actually already are, one often thinks of AI as taking away jobs. There actually are examples of, um, there's an example of a factory where they were about to close the factory because it wasn't productive enough and brought in a decision support system and that boosted the productivity so they could actually keep the factory and preserve those jobs. But I think you're absolutely right that um, the impact could be transformative and the question is how to respond to that. And certainly um, public policy could be important. I think actually, interestingly, AI itself could be helpful for that in that as people need to move to other areas, um, there's an enormous amount of research on AI and education. And so for retraining and making it possible for people to be maximally productive in whatever the new shape of society is, AI actually could contribute quite a bit. Isn't this a similar conversation to what's been going on just in terms of automation in general over the last couple of decades? Precisely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like I mean, we've had the Industrial Revolution um, some time ago, and now basically there could be um, a major shift. I mean, it's possible that the productivity also would enable um, kind of people to have shorter work weeks, et cetera, but then there are questions of 
equality of the returns from these technologies and how to handle that. Nathan may have more to say. Well, I, I'm struck by the this moment because it's so similar to the middle of the 1950s when people are encountering automation, that's when the word gets invented, and the electronic digital computer and widespread fears about technologically driven unemployment then. and. And some of that happened, but what I think you got most was a shift in the nature of work. Some jobs got more interesting, some jobs became more routine, some jobs were automated out of existence it, in a very complicated way that it's sometimes hard to figure out. Um, again, I would, I, I would say what's dangerous about talking about AI is it divorces that from human agency. So automation gets invented before the electronic computer. The computer is pursued by companies because it allows them to achieve the goal of automation. And we might ask same, the same things, right? So saying that AI self-driving cars are a few years away kind of begs the question of why has, for example, the Department of Defense been investing for three decades in autonomous vehicles. You know, we think of them as winning the race because they're cheaper than humans. But if you add up the massive billions and billions of dollars we've invested in these things, then this becomes a choice, not something that just happened. And we should be asking questions about who's making those choices and what outcomes do we desire and kind of what power relationships are embodied in that. I think truckers are going to lose their jobs in the next decade to autonomous vehicles. I also think we chose to do that to them, and we should live with the consequences. Daniel, any, any reaction? Yeah, I mean, the, so the, the analogy to the, the 1950s, um, I think gets often misused because the, the, the great fear that was posited them with, you know, automation is going to replace all these jobs. Um, and that didn't happen. And so people often use it to say, well, we shouldn't be afraid of AI. People will just retrain and shift. But what did happen from all that automation was a massive transfer of wealth from the middle class up to the 1% and the wealthy class to the point where, you know, middle class wages have been stagnant for 30 years. And that is directly connected to automation. And what's coming is the next wave of that. So yeah, maybe all jobs won't be replaced and some people could retrain, but we already have a labor force participation rate that's much lower than it has been, you know, in a long time. Um, not quite since the depression, but you know, lower than it should be if the economy were functioning the way we expected. And so to just sort of poo poo the risk by saying, well, you know, there's always been these fears around automation, around robotics, around new technology that people will go out of work and it's never happened before, it's not gonna happen this time. I think undercuts the damage that was done in the past and the damage that is threatened now. Yes. The other piece of it is that I think if we think about this in terms of actually sharing the prosperity that this creates, we could be looking, you know, with all the discussion I, I mostly hear about this, except in like the far fringes of the tech sector, is, well, how do we retrain people? How do we create new jobs? Where are the new jobs going to go? The fringes of the tech sector, the people who are really connected to this stuff are thinking, hey, doesn't this get us close to a society where we either finally, really, truly don't have to work as much or even don't have to require people to work at all? And that's a much more interesting way to think about it to me because it seems like we're pretty darn close. And, and I didn't mean to poo-poo the risks of either automation or AI. I actually agree with pretty much everything you've said. I guess I just want to turn the conversation to be more afraid of the groups and individuals who are using AI than AI itself, um, which I think allows us policy solutions. Yeah, and I, I'd say also that automation has been this, you know, it's been an issue for a long time, and I'm not sure that automation has, it's helped us in a lot of ways and in a lot of other ways. I'm not sure where the gains have been. So, so I think we're I think we're kind of on the same page, Daniel. But I really appreciate your call, and we're gonna sure. we're gonna go to our next caller. So we have Scott next. Scott's from Bloomington as well. Scott. Hi. Hey. Hi. Um, so I was just um, calling to see. Uh, you kind of mentioned earlier about um, Elon Musk um, and his his warning about AI, um, and you kind of um, downplayed it a little bit. Um, but I mean, it mirrors what Stephen Hawking said in 2014, um, that AI could mean the end of the human race, you know, obviously dispensationalist. But um, what about something in relation to the, um, I think around the time of Elon Musk's announcement, um, or proclamation of that, was the, um, 
uh, Facebook AI research lab there. Um, they had their chat bot um, that they were experimenting with create their own language and begin communicating in that own language without any human input um, to do so. Uh, I was just wondering if you could possibly loop back to the um, the idea of um, AI kind of getting away from itself or getting away from us, I should say. Um, yeah, that experiment was sort of sensationalized in the media. It's actually really interesting maybe from a technical point of view. From a technical person, it, it wasn't something that alarmed me really at all. Um, basically, what had happened is, uh, I'll talk about this at a very high level of abstraction. Basically, um, they were trying to train sort of an artificial, um, an artificial network to be able to do a negotiation with another sort of artificial system. And they were trying to see like whether uh, these two systems could sort of learn how to negotiate the way two humans would for, for to, to, to achieve some common task. And um, instead of communicating in English, which was what they ex wanted it to do so that then they could look at it as if it were two people communicating, it sort of learned shortcuts um, and it developed, you could say, quote unquote, its own language that only it could understand true. Um, I don't, but it's important to note that first of all, the people who could see what these programs were doing could actually understand the language. They had the, the mapping from English into this other language so they could actually you know, know what was going on. And some say it's, it's, it's no different from uh, the way that commu computers communicate on the internet right now. They're sending back and forth little binary signals that I don't understand as a human. Um, they were, those were sort of specifically designed by people. These are sort of emerging from data and that it sort of learned a more efficient way of doing that. But it isn't really any different conceptually. It, it's, it's easy to sort of see how that sensationalizes computers developing their own language, but that isn't really what happened. And in fact, um, you know, I know people who worked on the experiment fairly well. That experiment was actually a failure, not because it had developed its own language and they had to shut it down, but because it had failed because what they were trying to do was help this, build a system to learn English, and it hadn't done that. It was actually a failure for that reason. It wasn't because it posed any sort of um, danger. I, I really liked what Nathan said earlier, where I think the, the dangers in AI are less about sort of these um, uh, grand sort of worst case catastrophic, like the, the computers are going to take over thing, and more like hidden biases of these algorithms creeping in to the way that society makes decisions, for instance, us sort of over-relying on them, them reinforcing biases we don't want to have, and so on. More that than, than, uh, than computers learning to communicate in a language we don't understand. So I think we can say that Elon Musk probably, did, he had some personal reasons for doing this and weighing in and saying that this could be the end of the world as, as we know it. But so, so what, what do experts think? What is the future in 10 years that's actually doable that we're going oh, to see? And I sort of smile have, at we Nathan. We have three minutes to go. <laughs> yeah, minutes yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> but I, I mean, how do the people who actually really, really understand this field, how do, how do they see it? Well, one thing that I think is going to be important, which actually gets into what David was saying, is that um, the explainability of systems, for systems to actually be able to account for what they're doing, as long as they're black boxes and maybe learning and we don't understand exactly how they do it, then it's going to be harder to trust them, harder to um, have them accepted and be sure that they're going to be um, behaving appropriately. And there actually is a huge emergence of work in um, explaining AI systems, getting AI systems that can actually generate explanations and account for their behavior. And in some cases, that can be used to learn better. Who wants to go next? <laughs> this big question. Um, I don't know. It's impossible to predict, uh, I think, where we're going to be in 10 years. Um, as someone who's working kind of underneath the hood of things, I'm amazed by how much progress we've made, and I'm amazed by how much progress we still have to go. For self-driving cars, it's true. Uh, they work amazingly well, and they work, like I keep saying, sort of in the common case. I think it's not so hard to drive around a town uh, without your brain fully engaged, right? You can just sort of be half being attention, paying attention to the road. In some sense, I feel like that's where computers are right now. The trick is, and the intelligent part of having a human driver, is all of the long tail of things that can go wrong, all of the millions of things that can go wrong that we can't even think of going wrong, and yet we'll be 
able to make a decision, whereas a computer who's never seen that case before, who knows nothing about that situation, might not be able to, to, to do the same thing. And so it's really hard, I think, to see how far away we are from achieving kind of the goals that we might have set for ourselves and how, whether that's 10 years out and 100 years out or where those goals even are. It's clear AI will have a big uh, impact, but I'm not sure what they are. Nathan, you get the last minute. <laughs> well, well I, I mean, I guess I believe in, in distributed cognition. So a lot of tasks that we do are actually a kind of combination of individuals and social functions and machines. And I'm hoping in the next five or 10 years, we'll clarify what what role artificial intelligence or intelligent systems have in that, which also will allow us to clarify the human and the social mm -hmm. in those systems. Yeah, I mean, you, we've talked about artificial intelligence, but the whole field of intelligent systems technology seems to be blowing up too, yeah. correct? So, yes. yeah, I know Bloomington's sort of in in that system or in that in that world these days are trying to get into it bigger all right i want to thank you guys it's been a great conversation and uh, we still have radio hosts today that we're not automated yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. there, actually there are a lot of radio yeah, that is really that true yeah people in different states automating yeah right that's true but i want to thank our guests david crandall nathan insminger and david leak thanks for being here with us today and also thanks to producer Angelo Batista and his assistant Alex Graham, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks Thank for, you for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.